Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of domestic violence, abuse, and sex work. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. It was a warm August morning in 1995. Tina Bigger stepped into the shower, leaving her boyfriend, Todd Nuremberger, to drink his coffee alone in their shared apartment. Todd enjoyed starting his day with Tina. The two of them were so busy lately that this was basically the only time they had together. Todd almost felt like they were living completely separate lives, more like estranged roommates than lovers. His train of thought was broken by the sound of the phone. A man's voice on the other end asked if he could speak to Crystal. Todd told him he must have the wrong number. There was a pause. Then the man apologized and asked for Tina. The stranger introduced himself as Ken, but Todd didn't know anyone by that name. Feeling wary, Todd told the stranger that Tina was busy. Later, he tried to ask Tina about the weird phone call, but like always, she deflected. Eventually, he dropped it. He knew pressing Tina would only lead to a fight. But the incident stuck in his mind. In the following weeks, Todd wondered what might have happened if he'd done something different. If he'd pressed Tina about the mysterious crystal, maybe he could have avoided what happened next. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we'll discuss Tina Bicker and Kenneth Tranchita. After her sudden disappearance, Tina's family tried to pick up the pieces, but they soon realized that Tina was not the woman they thought they knew. Next week, will follow Tina's father as he gathers a group of friends to bring his daughter home. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, 
sweet screams. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Think about the person who means the most to you. It could be your best friend, your partner, your family. Now ask yourself, how well do you really know them? We'd like to believe we understand our loved ones, but imagine if one day you discovered one of them has been lying to you. Would you feel betrayed, strung along? Those are exactly the questions that people who knew Tina Bigger had to ask themselves in the summer of 1995. Within weeks, they learned Tina was hiding a massive secret, but none of them realized it until the day she disappeared. Tina Bigger's life wasn't always a mystery. She was born in 1971 to a traditional Midwestern family. Her mother, Connie, was a registered nurse. Her dad, Bill, worked as a Coast Guard commander. Because of his military job, the family moved around a lot. Every few years, the Bigger family uprooted themselves to go to a new state. First, South Carolina, then Alabama, Kansas, and Michigan. And every time, Tina and her siblings were forced to start their social lives over from scratch. Luckily, Tina was good at making friends. She was charming and had a way of putting people at ease. Being a pretty blonde didn't hurt either. The constant moving did take a toll on her though. Tina knew her friendships had a shelf life of about three years, so she took care not to get too attached. Before we dive into the psychology of Tina's childhood, please note, I'm not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. In a 1988 study, psychologist Raymond Napierkowski found that because they tend to move around a lot, children of service members often have difficulty developing deep relationships. Frequent relocation can have potential positive effects like increased unity in the immediate family. However, the lack of stable and meaningful friendships can also affect a person's ability to establish trust and intimacy in relationships. In place of friends, Tina relied on her family. She was particularly close to her father. She respected Bill immensely and he in turn was always there for Tina. When she was 15 years old, Bill was transferred from Traverse City, Michigan to the small island of Kodiak, Alaska. Once again, Tina quickly found a group of friends, but as a budding teenager, she now had something else on her mind too, boys. She was attracted to rebels, but the trouble with bad boys is that eventually they make trouble for you. After a few tumultuous relationships, Tina decided she needed a clean slate away from the small town. So she switched gears and started hitting the books. She ended up graduating high school in December of 1989, six months early. From there, Tina headed to South Dakota State University in the fall of 1990. She left her family in Kodiak and moved back to her birthplace in the town of Brookings to start school. 
it didn't take long for Tina to excel at college. She majored in biology, hoping to get a job in physical therapy one day. But though she was living with extended family in Brookings, she sorely missed her parents and siblings. So when her dad was transferred again in 1991, this time back to Michigan, Tina was thrilled. She took the fall semester off to spend time with her family. Now 20 years old, Tina got a job at the clothing store American Eagle to support herself. She planned to make some money before returning to SDSU for the spring semester. But life threw her a curveball. One day at work, Tina spotted a cute boy around her age shopping with his parents. She approached the family and offered to help them pick out some sweaters. The boy's name was Todd. He was visiting for a few days from Ann Arbor where he went to college. Tina tried to keep up the conversation, but Todd didn't seem too keen to chat. So when he left, Tina assumed that would be the last she ever saw of him. The very next day, however, Todd stopped by the store again, this time with a friend. He invited her to a party and asked for her phone number. Tina said yes. The two of them headed off immediately. They spent the entire party talking together. Todd had to return to Ann Arbor a few days later, but the two kept in touch and soon they started officially dating. For months, the couple took turns making the four-hour drive between Ann Arbor and Traverse City. When Tina went back to school, they continued to date, but the 13-hour drive made things more difficult. Eventually, Tina decided to make a change. With Todd and her immediate family in Michigan, it just didn't make sense for her to stay in South Dakota. So in the spring of 1992, she transferred to Oakland University in Rochester. That meant she was just a three-hour drive away from Traverse City and only one hour from Ann Arbor. On top of going to school full-time, Tina also started working as a server at the Rochester Chop House and Oyster Bar. There, her friendly personality and ability to stay cool under pressure apparently regularly earned her more tips than any other server. Todd also had a serving job, but unfortunately, he didn't fare as well as Tina. He just didn't have the natural people skills Tina did, not to mention the restaurant he worked for struggled to stay open. As a result, he hardly made enough money to get by. Tina had to buy him basic necessities, and whenever they went out, she always footed the bill. The imbalance got even worse when a series of drunk driving incidents landed Todd in hot water. He spent two weeks in jail and had his license suspended for six months. Tina was furious. Since he couldn't make the drive from Ann Arbor to Rochester, she had to be the one to keep their relationship alive. For months, Tina worked and went to school full-time during the week, then drove to Ann Arbor on the weekend. She was exhausted and Todd was depressed over his run of bad luck. The stress took a toll on their relationship. Even so, the couple stuck it out. By the summer of 1994, the relationship was stable enough that Todd asked Tina to move in with him. The young couple found a one-bedroom apartment for rent in the Detroit suburb of Farmington Hills. But about a month before their move-in day, Tina made a shocking discovery. One day when she was organizing Todd's things, Tina found a greeting card with a woman's handwriting on it. Inside was a sexually suggestive note signed, 
Nancy. Tina had heard of Nancy before. She lived in the dorms with Todd at U of M. Todd always spoke fondly of her, but Tina hadn't suspected anything was going on between them. Determined to get to the bottom of it, she called Todd's former roommate and asked him point blank if Nancy had ever spent the night in their room. Without pausing, he told Tina that she had. Tina's worst fears were confirmed. During the most difficult point in their relationship, when she was paying for everything and driving to Ann Arbor every weekend, Todd was cheating on her. Tina lost it. The betrayal reportedly brought out her dark side, a bitter, vindictive attitude that didn't match her usual bubbly personality. Tina's friend Amy, a fellow server at the Chop House, later said it was the only time she ever saw Tina lose control. Tina told Amy in no uncertain terms that she wasn't going to take the disrespect lying down. Todd was going to pay for what he did to her. Amy didn't know what Tina had in mind, but from the look in her friend's eyes, Amy knew it had to be something bad. Coming up, the relationship takes a dark turn. Hi, it's Lainey, and I'm delighted to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, Parcast Network is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. It's based on Parcast's hit podcast, Cults. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this captivating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more. Exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. It's an essential read for any true crime fan. You do not want to miss it. There are limited copies available, so log on to parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order. Cults, inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who join them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In August of 1994, Todd Nuremberger knew he was in the doghouse. He begged Tina for forgiveness, but she wasn't sure she wanted to move forward with their relationship. She spent weeks waffling back and forth. One day, she'd seem willing to move on, but the next, she'd be furious. At some point, she threw a sapphire ring Todd had bought her out the car window. Finally, a week before their move-in day, Tina came back with a decision. She was willing to give Todd another chance. Todd was relieved, but privately, Tina still seethed in anger. She wasn't done thinking of ways to make her boyfriend suffer. 
Todd's first real taste of Tina's revenge came a few days later, when they attended a party at a friend's house. After catching up with an old friend, Todd made his way outside the party. What he saw immediately threw him into a fit of rage. Tina was out by the apartment complex pool, making out with a stranger. Todd and Tina got into a screaming argument. When Todd pointed out Tina's hypocrisy, she argued that the incident couldn't possibly compare to the months he spent lying to her. Clearly, Tina wanted to even the score, and according to evolutionary psychologist, getting revenge actually does have some concrete benefits. Individuals known for being vengeful are less likely to be wronged in the first place. But studies have also found that this kind of disposition can have a variety of adverse psychological effects, including an increase in depression or symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. In general, researchers have found that people with less of a desire for revenge generally reported greater life satisfaction and more positive moods. After the screaming match, Todd let the incident go. The couple moved in together on September 1st as planned, but it was clear, Tina was still having trouble trusting her boyfriend. Whenever he wasn't where he said he'd be, she'd interrogate him endlessly. But things didn't work in the other direction. If Todd ever asked Tina about her schedule, she would lash out, making sarcastic comments about Nancy. Eventually, he stopped asking Tina where she was or what she was doing. It was the only way to keep the peace. Outside her troubled relationship, Tina did her best to focus on her studies. During the fall semester of 1994, she discovered a new passion for psychology. Tina changed her major and quickly became one of the department's most promising undergraduates. She was even selected to take part in a study for the CDC. She, along with seven other students from Oakland, would interview incarcerated sex workers about AIDS awareness and health practices. After the initial conversations, students from another university would conduct a program to educate the women on the subject. Then the Oakland students would interview the sex workers again to see if they retained the information. Tina became extremely focused on the CDC study. It was all she would talk about. And she had a knack for it, too. She was an incredible listener. Tina would always say, everybody has a skeleton or two in their closet, including me. As the fall semester faded into spring and the CDC study came to an end, Tina started to look for a way to continue the work she loved so much. She was hoping to graduate in a year and was starting to think about applying to graduate school. If she wanted to get into a good program, she needed a way to stand out. That's when she came up with the idea to conduct her own honor study, focused on high-end escorts and their practices to prevent the transmission of AIDS. Tina started calling local escort services to see if they would be willing to participate in the study. She then put together a research proposal to be approved by the department heads at the school. With her ambitious research goals on top of her already demanding schedule, Tina had less free time than ever. As the summer of 1995 approached, people close to Tina started to notice a change in her. She seemed depressed and irritable. It was a far cry from the personable, optimistic woman she'd been just a year prior. 
Todd saw it too. He started to feel like Tina was avoiding spending time with him. It seemed like she was always picking up extra shifts at the chop house. If she wasn't there, then she was at a nightclub called the Q Club, where her friend Amy had gotten her a second job. Yet, despite all the work, Tina was constantly stressed about money. Todd attributed the changes to Tina's anxiety around the approval for her big research project. But if he was hoping their relationship could weather another storm, he was in for disappointment. As the end of their lease approached, Tina told Todd she needed some space, a trial separation, she called it. She asked for six months to figure things out, though she understood if Todd just wanted to break up and move on. Todd wasn't ready to call it quits. He still wanted to spend the rest of his life with Tina and he'd do anything to make that happen. So as August approached, he and Tina looked for separate living situations. But Todd never gave up hope that they would eventually work things out. While they were apartment hunting, Todd heard Tina mention a man named Ken. The first time the name came up was during a bizarre phone call. Ken called the house, asking to speak to Crystal. When Todd told him he had the wrong number, the man corrected himself and asked for Tina. When Todd asked Tina about the call, she shrugged. She explained Ken was the Q Club's owner. She said he must have confused her with some other employee. At first, Todd was jealous, believing Tina had found someone else. But Tina reassured him she wasn't remotely interested in Ken. He was older and not very attractive. But Todd wasn't convinced. Whatever their relationship was, Tina was certainly relying on Ken. When she totaled her Honda a few weeks later, Ken offered to loan Tina $20,000 to buy a new car and pay her outstanding bills. He reportedly told her she could repay him in small monthly installments with no interest. Tina was thrilled. It looked like her luck was finally turning around. She even found a new apartment that she was excited about, but Todd found Ken's offer suspicious. He wondered why Tina's boss would lend her so much money. When he mentioned his suspicions to Tina, she got angry. She said she couldn't talk about it because Ken didn't want people knowing he was loaning money to employees. Todd decided to drop the subject. He didn't want to ruin the chances of them staying together after the trial separation. Maybe if Tina's life was less stressful, she'd be more open to reconciling. But it didn't take long for things to go downhill again. When Todd came home to their shared apartment on Tuesday, August 22nd, Tina was visibly upset. When he asked what was wrong, she launched into a list of troubles. She and Ken had gone to a new car lot the day before. Tina picked out a 1993 Honda, but when the time came to pay, things got complicated. Apparently, Ken's mother-in-law was supposed to arrive with the cash, but she didn't show. Tina and Ken waited at the dealership for three hours before Tina angrily left, telling Ken to call her when he had the money. But that wasn't the only thing she was upset about. Earlier that day, she found out her dream apartment was a total dud. The whole building had to be condemned, landing Tina back at square one in her apartment hunt. While it sounded like a pain to deal with, 
Todd had a feeling these weren't the only things bothering Tina. Throwing caution to the wind, he pressed her about why she was so unhappy. He could tell something had changed with her over the past few months. He wanted to work through it together. Tina reluctantly admitted that she did have something to come clean about, but she didn't have the energy for it that night. Instead, she asked if he could get the night off of work tomorrow. She promised she would tell Todd then. He agreed, equal parts nervous and excited that Tina was finally letting him in on her secret. The next day, Todd went to work as usual, leaving Tina asleep in bed. By the early afternoon, he had found someone to cover his shift that night. He called Tina at the apartment to let her know. When he got the answering machine, he tried her cell phone, then her pager. No response. Todd found the whole thing a bit strange. Tina usually answered his pages within the hour. He figured she was just busy. But when he got home around 6 p.m., Tina was nowhere to be found. After paging her again without an answer, Todd got worried. When 11 p.m. came around and Tina still hadn't shown up, he called the chop house. He thought Tina might have picked up a new shift at the last minute, but when he got a hold of the restaurant, he was in for a shock. The voice on the other end of the line sounded confused. They told Todd that Tina hadn't worked at the chop house since June. Coming up, Todd uncovers Tina's secret life. Now, back to the story. Todd Nuremberger awoke on August 24, 1995, in a panic. His girlfriend of three years, 23-year-old Tina Bigger, hadn't come home last night. And if that wasn't bad enough, he discovered she'd been lying to him for months. He checked the answering machine. Tina never forgot to call if she was going to be out late, but there were no messages. Todd looked around the apartment and found Tina's makeup bag and her glasses. A knot formed in the pit of his stomach. She never would have gone anywhere without her things. Todd forced himself to stay calm. It was almost 6.30 a.m. and his next shift started soon. He hid Tina's things underneath a pillow so she would have to call him when she got home to find them. Then he drove to work. Todd tried to focus on his job, but he couldn't concentrate. He was too worried about Tina. He explained the situation to his supervisor and asked if he was overreacting, but she didn't think so. She suggested that he call Tina's parents to tell them what was going on. Bill Bigger was at work at the Coast Guard base in Traverse City when he received Todd's call. Bill was a level-headed guy, so when he heard that his eldest daughter was missing, he knew what he had to do. He got in his black suburban and started the four-hour drive south to Farmington, where Tina and Todd lived. As Bill drove, he thought about his eldest daughter. Tina never failed to call home at least once a week and had even told him about her relationship troubles with Todd. Bill wasn't a huge fan of his daughter moving in with Todd before marriage. When he heard, he'd sent Tina an article from Catholic Digest warning about the dangers of cohabitation. Still, he liked Todd, especially considering some of Tina's other former boyfriends. You see, this wasn't the first time Bill had to come to Tina's rescue. 
Back in 1989, when the Biggers lived in Kodiak, Alaska, Tina had fallen for Luke Jackson, a 20-year-old Coast Guardsman. Tina, who was 17 at the time, apparently had a tendency to think more with her heart than her head. And she'd fallen for Jackson hard. Things had been good for a while, but Tina reportedly eventually discovered that Jackson had a temper and a jealous streak. He swung between two extremes. Sometimes he told Tina he wanted to marry her. Moments later, he'd become furious and violent. Tina didn't like where things were going, and she knew what she had to do. Tina met with Jackson in his trailer and told him she wanted to end things. Jackson grew angry and violent. When Tina tried to leave, he wouldn't let her. Tina managed to contact a friend who then called Bill. Bill rushed to Jackson's trailer. There, rather than trying to fight fire with fire, Bill simply sat down and talked. After a long discussion, his patient nature won out. He convinced Jackson to let Tina leave, then drove his teenage daughter home. That was six years ago. Bill wondered what Tina had gotten herself into this time. He prayed that once again, he would be able to bring her safely home. While Todd waited for Bill to arrive, he made a few other phone calls. He contacted the Michigan State Police as well as the Farmington Police, thinking maybe one of them had received a report of a woman matching Tina's description. They hadn't. The next person he thought about was Ken, the mysterious owner of the Q Club who promised to loan Tina money. He called the club to see if he could get Ken's number, but no one answered. Todd left work at 10.30 a.m., not wanting to wait for the club to open that night. He instead stopped by the car lot where Tina and Ken had gone to on Monday, three days prior. At the dealership, Todd spoke to a salesman who remembered Tina. She had been to the lot several times to pick out a car. He also remembered the man she was with. He was a real talker. But the most important thing the salesman had for Todd was a piece of paper. Written on it was a pager number and a full name, Ken Tranchita. Todd paged Ken right away, leaving his apartment number for a return call. Then he stopped at the Oakland University campus to talk to Tina's advisor, Professor Harrison. The professor told Todd that the last time she'd seen Tina was around 12.45 p.m. on Tuesday the 22nd. That was the last day Todd had seen her as well. Harrison and Tina had discussed her research project. The professor noticed that Tina seemed tense. When asked about it, Tina told Harrison about her money issues and the pending loan. Harrison warned Tina about the deal, saying, no one gives you something for nothing. Tina reassured her advisor that Ken just wanted to help. Then she rushed off, saying she had someone waiting. Todd left the university trying not to feel frustrated. He still hadn't found Tina, but he had found Ken's last name. Plus, he'd soon have the help of a Coast Guard commander. It was time to talk to Bill. The two met at a fast food restaurant in Farmington Hills. They discussed what Todd had already discovered, Ken's last name and Tina's lie about her job. Then the two men went back to the apartment and searched through Tina's things for clues. Their search turned up very little. 
The only items that seemed odd were a few short skirts and fancy clothes that seemed a little out of character for Tina. She usually dressed pretty conservatively, but the two men didn't think much of it. They spent the rest of the day calling Tina's friends. By 9 p.m., Ken still hadn't returned their page. None of Tina's other friends had seen or heard from her. Bill decided it was time to get the authorities involved. He and Todd went to the Farmington Hills Police Department and officially filed a missing persons report. The officer who took down their information didn't seem particularly helpful. He informed them that most people turn up within 48 hours and not to expect detectives to do backflips. Bill still thanked the man for his time. When the two men got back to the apartment, Todd finally got a hold of Tina's friend who also worked at the Chop House and Q Club, Amy. She admitted that she knew Tina had quit the Chop House in June. If anything, she was surprised Todd didn't know. Todd then asked Amy if she knew anything about Ken Tranchita, the owner of the Q Club. She was confused by his question. The owner's name wasn't Ken. Psychologists have long studied the reasons why people choose to lie to those closest to them. A 1996 study by Bella DiPaolo and Deborah Cashy found that lies are sometimes told to avoid conflict or minimize hurt feelings. Perhaps that was Tina's intent, but that same study found lies are more frequently told to benefit the liar than to spare the person being lied to. And based on what Todd and Bill had found so far, it seemed like Tina might have done exactly that. The next morning, Bill and Todd took stock of what they knew. It was Friday, August 25th. The last time Todd had seen Tina was on Wednesday morning. Tina had left her glasses and makeup at the apartment, suggesting that she didn't plan to be gone for long, but no one had seen her since. Then there were Tina's two big lies. Number one, she had maintained for months that she was still working at the chop house, when in reality, she quit in early June. Number two, Tina told them that Ken Tranchita was a businessman who owned a prosperous nightclub called the Q Club. It turned out that Ken was not the club owner. In fact, Bill and Todd had no idea who he was or how Tina knew him, but they were determined to find out. One of the only things Todd knew about Ken was that he had once telephoned their apartment asking for someone named Crystal. Now that they knew Tina was keeping secrets from them, Todd and Bill wondered who else may have been calling Tina. Bill suggested they contact the phone company and have copies of the bill faxed to them. Bill and Todd pored over the phone records. They discovered a bunch of numbers Todd didn't recognize and decided to call some of them. But given it was Friday afternoon, they mostly reached answering machines. Other numbers just rang and rang. This wasn't getting them anywhere. Todd called the phone company again and asked if he could get names to go with the unknown numbers. The phone company said the only way they could do that was if Todd claimed that he'd been improperly billed on every call. So that's what Todd did. Todd and Bill had the list of corresponding names by mid-afternoon. As they went over the call log, there were a few things that struck them as odd. The first was an alarming number of calls placed to someone named Debbie Lawson. 
Todd had never heard that name before. Another oddity was the fact that Tina had made multiple calls to two escort agencies in Detroit. Considering her research project interviewing escorts, this detail alone wasn't cause for alarm. What didn't make sense was that Tina made the calls late at night, sometimes at midnight or later. Todd called the number for Debbie Lawson, hoping to find some answers there. But the person who answered not only denied knowing Tina, she also claimed she had no idea who Debbie Lawson was. Bill suspected the person was lying, but there was little they could do over the phone to make her tell them the truth. He tried telling this woman that Tina was missing, hoping to goad her into being more helpful, but she didn't budge. After a day of dead ends, Todd and Bill were exhausted. Bill went back to his hotel and Todd tried to get some sleep, but that was easier said than done. At some point in a fit of restlessness, Todd got up and started looking through Tina's things again. Maybe there was something he'd missed. And Todd was right. Buried deep in a moving box, he found a red duffel bag that he'd never seen before. When he opened it, he was shocked. Inside Tina's bag were packaged condoms, sexual lubricants, and stacks of blank credit card receipts. Even more damning was the pile of envelopes tucked discreetly in the corner. They were addressed to a company called Elite Desires, and the return address in the upper left-hand corner was the name Crystal. It all started to click in Todd's mind. The phone call asking for Crystal, the short skirts, the lies about where Tina was working, the late night calls to escort services. Tina wasn't just studying call girls, she was working as one. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next time with part two of the disappearance of Tina Bigger where we'll follow Bill Bigger and his quest to find his daughter. For more information on Tina Bigger and her mysterious disappearance amongst the many sources we used, we found The Co-Ed Call Girl by Fanny Weinstein and Melinda Wilson extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Danny Messerschmidt, with writing assistance by Georgia Hampton and Tara Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hi, it's Lainey, and I'm delighted to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, Parcast Network is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's based on Parcast's hit podcast, Cults. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this captivating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more. 
exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. It's an essential read for any true crime fan. You do not want to miss it. There are limited copies available, so log on to parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order. Cults, inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who joined them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. <laughs>